Welcome to the Church Podcast, talking all things ministry so you can do church better. I'm your co-host, Chris Wesley, joined by John Ronaldo. John, how's it going, my man? It's really good. Life is good. Uh, really starting to get ready for fall. I can't believe uh, uh, it's, we're still in the summer, but you know, honestly, like I'm thinking about school and sending the kids back to school. We're starting to think about supplies. So it's just like, you know, summer came and, and summer went and at school and the beginning of the school year will be here before we know it. So, but other than that, life is good. How are you, Chris? What's going on? I was good until you just bummed me out. With <laughs> I mean, come on, John, like here in Maryland, we still have six weeks left because uh, we don't go back till uh, Labor Day. And, uh, you know, here you are talking about back to school shopping. Wow. I don't know how to recover from that. <laughs> Before that comment, though, I was doing really great. And uh, no, th- things are good. And uh, I- I'm really excited because um, I know this airs. Uh, uh, the- we're recording this a week before it airs. But, um, you know, I think two weeks from when we're recording this, I'll be heading out to Steubenville uh, for uh, the Voices and Vision uh, uh, conference or gathering. I'm not sure what the exact terminology of what it is, but it's going to be breaking down uh, uh, um, Christ is Alive document and talking a little bit further about how we accompany and um, walk along in adults and, and, youth, and youth in our parish. And, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, some good, uh, good uh, professional development coming up before we hit the fall. Um, but uh, not, not that uh, we can't talk about what's going on in our summers, but uh, I'm really excited because we've got a special guest uh, that's joining us today. And it's a special guest spawned by our last episode on Restored Order, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So, so here's what happened. Just so every all you listening have the background of this. So, episode ninety was uh, will restored order fix the confirmation problem? And and we talked about what we meant by restored order, and we talked about the confirmation, what we meant by the confirmation problem. And and, and by my own admittance, it was much more practical conversation than it was a theological conversation and and so we as we usually do we share all of our episodes out on social media and uh, one individual in particular uh, listened to the episode and and responded on Facebook with a quite a long response uh, and, and talking about um, the theology around restored order and quite honestly Chris and I didn't address it last time and so uh, we got into a little bit of dialogue on that uh, and, and that individual that responded to that was Nick Wagner from Team RCIA and so he's here joining us I think you're recording in San Jose California Nick how are you man doing great hi guys thanks for having me on absolutely well i was thrilled like honestly like you were you were upping the game here when you posted on facebook i was sitting there going i'm learning a lot and that's what i love about that's what i love about social media that's what i love about podcasting is that we have the opportunity to dialogue in this way um and and so this episode is really spurned out of a short conversation we had on facebook so encourage you if you're listening if you want to get in some dialogue or have some questions facebook uh, Twitter, uh, other uh, social media means this is a great place to have some conversation and, and who knows, you know, maybe we'll do a follow up episode because of it. So Nick, before we get into the topic, tell us a little bit about yourself, your history and what you're doing with Team RCIA. Uh, we, uh, my wife, Diana McAlento and I, we founded Team RCIA um, in I think 2007 and it was, uh, it 
I don't know if, uh, if we can remember back that far, but uh, for, uh, for a lot of us uh, of the baby boom generation in the Catholic Church, uh, at that time, we were not real web savvy. Uh, Facebook had just been available for a few years and um, we had mastered email, I think, and that was about it. Uh, but uh, Diane and I noticed that a lot of RCI teams and parishes lacked uh, any constant ongoing support. There was, there was a group that did live training called the North American Forum on the Catechumenate, but once folks got home, there was kind of very little follow-up for them. So we decided to start a, a, a blog basically to, uh, to support folks with an online presence. And uh, in, in, that, in those beginning years, it was a little bit of uh, needing to educate the audience about how to turn on the computer and find a web page and respond to a blog and things like that. Uh, but it's been growing a little bit every year since then. And somewhere in that time span, the North American Forum went out of business. And so we started doing live events as well. So, so now we do training both online and in person for catechumenate teams in parishes across the United States and Canada. And then this year we are blessed to have the opportunity to go to Australia. So we'll be doing some training there as well. That's excellent. And, and we've had Diana on our show before as well as so we've talked about the liturgy and, and, and some other things. And so it's a blessing to, to have uh, you, Nick, on this particular episode. So, so uh, we talked a lot about the practicality and, and, for instance, how confirmation takes up so much of our youth ministry leaders' time that confirmation becomes a, a poor, uh, um, what's the word, a, a poor... I can't even think of the word, but it becomes poor youth ministry, basically. And we don't do effective, compre comprehensive youth ministry. Uh, and so we talked about that. And so it's like, well, if, will restored order allow parishes to do more effective, comprehensive youth ministry? That was part of our conversation in the last particular episode. And you provided some, some really, I think, interesting insight, theological insight about restored order. So tell us, tell us a little bit about some of the things that you had mentioned on the Facebook post and, and some, of, some of your thinking around restored order and this confirmation problem? Yeah, so I come at it from the perspective of initiation or catechumenate ministry, and I don't have a lot of background and experience with youth ministry uh, other than just observing what you guys do when I'm in a, involved in a parish. Um, but the, the perspective that I come at it, uh, the understanding of restored order, uh, is uh, flows out of the restoration of the catechumenate, which is a result of the Second Vatican Council. And the, the restoration of the catechumenate was, a, like you guys were talking about, is this a practical thing or a theological thing? Uh, the, the restoration of the catechumenate was, a, at, at, at its roots, a, a practical response to a problem that uh, Pope John the 23rd and the bishops of that time saw in the world. They saw that, they saw that the church needed uh, a stronger presence in the world, a more evangelizing presence, a more direct response to what Pope Francis calls uh, the, the marginalization of the folks on the peripheries. And so the one of the responses to that was the restoration of the catechumenate. Uh, the catechumenate had died out pretty much by the sixth century in the church. And so from that time until the, till the late 19th century, early 20th century, the church really didn't have an experience of, of sort of a, a progressive 
ordered uh, conversion process of initiating people into, into Jesus. Uh, so once the catechumen was restored, it caused the church leaders to really delve into what we mean by initiation, what we mean by conversion, and, and what it is to be a, a disciple of Jesus in a, in a complete sense. And the, in, in that process, they realized that what the early church practiced was an initiation uh, sequence of baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, and all those sacraments were celebrated in one event, usually at the Easter Vigil, and, and in the very early church presided over by the bishop. So the bishop was the minister of all those sacraments for folks who would come to the Easter Vigil. And, and the, the, um, that has implications for how we understand each of those sacraments. So Pope Benedict wrote, uh, wrote uh, I'm not sure if it was an encyclical or an exhortation, but he wrote a document called uh, uh, the, uh, the Sacrament of Charity in 2007. In that document, he said that baptism and confirmation are ordered to the Eucharist. In other words, the reason for celebrating baptism and confirmation is to bring seekers to the table so they can have that full communion with Christ, the full entrance into the body and blood of Jesus. Uh, so confirmation is part of that sequence, part of that process. And the underlying theology behind that has to do with our understanding of Trinity. So when we separate confirmation from baptism, it has implications for how we teach and understand about Trinity. Uh, so if you think about what's happening in baptism, what's happening in confirmation, it's, it's the fullness of the Godhead coming to us and, and drawing us into the love and the friendship of that Trinitarian relationship. Uh, and all of that comes to a culmination at Eucharist. So every Sunday when we celebrate the Eucharist, when we come to communion, when we extend our hands and receive the body of Christ or uh, extend our hands and receive the blood of Christ, when we say amen, we're reaffirming that, uh, that yes, we believe and yes, we're part of this, this dynamic relationship of love between the Father, Son, and Spirit. So what was the impetus then of after the sixth century when the catechumenate was gone, what, what, what caused then this, this change from, you know, the, the, what we're calling restored order to now the order that's popular in a lot of parishes and dioceses, baptism, Eucharist, then confirmation. What was, what caused that? Well, the, the order, uh, the, the sequence didn't actually change until the 20th century, but the proximity changed. And the reason, the, so, so uh, confirmation uh, stopped being celebrated along with baptism was celebrated some years after baptism, really because of the success of the evangelizing efforts of the church. So the church began to grow kind of exponentially. And, and because of that, the bishop could no longer be the sole presider at, when, uh, when folks were baptized. And especially when we started to baptize infants on, in large numbers after, uh, after about the fifth century and after some of the teaching of St. Augustine, we started having many, many more infant baptisms and the bishop couldn't be present for all of those. And so the, uh, this, this happened uh, kind of simultaneously in the Eastern church and the Western church. In the Western church, in the, in the Roman Catholic church, the solution to that pastoral problem was 
the bishop delegated the authority to baptize to the priests, to the pastors of the parishes, but he retained the, he retained the, um, the ministry of confirmation to himself. In the Eastern Rite churches, which is still the case today, the bishop delegated the authority for both baptism and confirmation. And so infants in the Eastern Rite church are baptized, confirmed, and uh, receive Eucharist all in the same uh, all in the same ceremony, same liturgy. In the Western Church, in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, the the bishops, uh, the priests would baptize the child, and then the bishop, when he would make a pastoral visit to that part of the diocese, he would confirm the children. And as the church grew and uh, time got extended, you try to imagine that you're a parent in the in the seventh century, and and you live three days ride from the the cathedral, and the bishop is going to come to a part of your diocese that's only two days ride. You're expected to bring your child and all your other children, and leave your crops and your animals, and go two days to wherever the bishop is, and and that just you know didn't happen. So confirmation gradually becomes more and more separated from baptism for for practical reasons, not for any theological mm -hmm. reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, but the order remained the same until 1910. So, mm. so what would happen would be uh, children would be baptized as infants. They would be confirmed somewhere around the age of seven, eight, nine years old. And then they would celebrate First Communion around somewhere between the ages of 10 and 14. Uh, and, and, but when we got to the 20th century, uh, Pope Pius X, saw that not very many Catholics were receiving communion on Sundays and he wanted to alleviate that problem. So he said, the way we're gonna deal with that is we're gonna institute a practice of regular communion much earlier in people's lives. And so he reduced the age of first communion from you know, the tween years to the age of reason, to age seven. But in doing that, he didn't really, the church didn't really talk about or consider what would happen with confirmation but the practical effect was it moved the celebration of Eucharist before confirmation, which was the first time in our history that that was, that had really happened. So when people say, this is how we've, we've always done it this way. Yeah. They've that's done it not this way true. for a couple <laughs> generations. Yeah. 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 Fascinating. It, and go ahead, Chris. No, it, it's interesting to hear um, just even, you know, before um, the more recent switch, I guess, um, you know, how much it progressed and changed, you know, over the centuries in, in that regards and how it's been this constant conversation and not just something that happened, you know, um, several decades ago where they're like, all right, we're going to just make the switch for no apparent reason. But um, to hear the history behind it is, is definitely um, interesting and enlightening. And the other thing that goes through my mind is how much just culture around us has changed too during that time, right? Because you know, you think about the term adolescence and the term adolescence didn't really even exist till the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. And so adolescent ministry or youth ministry, as we know it today, um, that was something that was started in the 50s and 60s as a CYO program, you know, out of Chicago. And um, and so you add that layer into it and it even creates more complication um, and, yeah. and mixing that as well. And, and when confirmation is celebrated, so I was confirmed in the, in the, uh, unrestored order. I was, I was uh, baptized as an infant. I celebrated first communion in first grade and I was confirmed in third grade. So there wasn't any, you know, when I was a child, there wasn't this sense that confirmation had to do with 
being mature or making an adult decision or anything like that. It was just that's when the bishop came to our grade school and everybody in the grade school was confirmed. Uh, mm -hmm. So my some of my schoolmates were confirmed in when they were in seventh grade and some were in fourth grade and I was in third grade. Uh, but as confirmation, you know, is, is no longer ordered toward the Eucharist, pastoral youth ministers and folks who are developing youth ministry are struggling with, you know, what do we do with this sacrament? And, and it's a natural response. Folks began to think of it, well, confirmation must be a mature affirmation of what I did in baptism. And so we began to talk, some of the pastoral writing began to talk about it that way. But that was never church teaching in the catechism, in fact, says that uh, we shouldn't think of it as a maturity sacrament uh, because when we call it a maturity sacrament, we're, we're, uh, we're sort of, I don't know what the right word is. We're, we're undermining or denigrating the work that God does. We're saying that God's, God's action of bringing us the fullness of Christ in baptism and in the Eucharist is not enough. And, and sometime later when we're old enough and smart enough, we have to add our own affirmation onto that to kind of complete what God did. And, mm -hmm. and uh, that's just incorrect teaching. But it, it becomes sort of a natural pastoral way of thinking about it if confirmation is no longer ordered to the Eucharist. Yeah, that's fascinating. When, when I've done trainings on confirmation, one of the lines that I often said is, is it seems like uh, confirmation is a sacrament seeking a theology, mm -hmm. right? Because yeah. of this confusion, exactly the confusion that you named. Is this a sacrament of maturity? Or as you say, is it a, rightly aligned with the other sacraments of initiation? And mm -hmm. because it's so typically in most cases it's so far away from from eucharist and from baptism that the, that maturity language i even used it you know mm -hmm. when when i was a, a parish youth minister and now i realize like oh i mean the things you learn you know with yeah. age and age and wisdom right yeah. um but i think it's really fascinating so what's the trend now so since vatican ii we we've reinstituted the, the catechumenate model of course the rcia any of you who are listening to this, I highly recommend that you read the RCIA document. Uh, uh, I reread it again recently, and it was just my eyes were open. But but what is what's happening in certainly in the United States, and if you know other places, in terms of this idea of restored order? Are our dioceses and parishes pushing towards restored order? Is there a ton of resistance somewhere in between? Well, there are uh, there are thirteen dioceses in the United States that have restored the sacraments to the proper order, uh, baptism, confirmation, Eucharist. And the, the most recent one uh, ha is in the process of doing so. At the, in February of 2019, the Bishop of Gallup, New Mexico, uh, announced that their diocese would be uh, starting a process of restoring the order. Um, and there are several dioceses in Canada as well. I'm not sure the proper, uh, the total number there. There are uh, some number of dioceses in the United States where the order had been restored to the proper order and then the diocese got a new bishop and the new bishop put everything back the way it was, you know, and so there's some of that confusion. So I don't, I don't, I don't think 13 dioceses constitute a trend exactly, uh, but Pope Benedict did say, it did write a, a document in 2009 called the Sacrament of Charity in which he said, we need to pay much closer attention uh, to the close link between baptism, confirmation, Eucharist. And he said that our pastoral practice should reflect the unitary understanding of Christian initiation. Uh, so there is some, some uh, 
what some some top down stuff and some bottom up stuff both uh, that are looking at this. But the the big paradigm shift is being uh, caused by the restoration of the catechumenate because the in the in the if if you go through the RCA if you're an unbaptized adult and you're going to be uh, initiated into the church that by canon law. Uh, that person, that unbaptized person, when they're baptized, must be confirmed and celebrate Eucharist in the same liturgy. And when the RCA talks about an adult, they they don't mean a, a, a biological adult; they mean a spiritual adult. So, uh, in in church language, anyone who's reached the age of reason, who's who's able to uh, live a, a, a ministerial life in such a way that they they know how to forgive and be sorry for their own sins. They know how to uh, say yes to the reality of Jesus, both in the lives of the community and in the Eucharist. Um, and so we say that is about the age of seven. That's why we celebrate First Communion around that age. So if a, a child is unbaptized and reaches the age of reason, then when they're baptized, they must also be confirmed and celebrate Eucharist. And, and the church, the numbers of children, the numbers of unbaptized children, who reached the age of reason and now being initiated in the church are just exploding. It's, it's almost triple the number of when I started this ministry 30 years ago. And so what we have, the past reality we have in a lot of parishes is we have some significant number of children who are confirmed around the age of seven or eight, nine years old when they're baptized and their cousins who were baptized as infants uh, can't be confirmed until they're 14 or 15 or 16, whatever the diocesan age is. And the grandmother is coming to the pastor and saying, what up? You know, why, why, why does my one grandchild confirmed as a, you know, in primary school and my other grandchild can't be confirmed until he's in high school. And, and so that's generating a lot of conversation uh, like you said in your previous podcast around the practicalities of all this, but that, the, that, in turn then leads to uh, a question, well, what do we mean by confirmation? What, it, what is the reason for confirmation? What's the theology behind confirmation? Right. So I'm not sure if we'll see a complete restoration in my lifetime, but it will certainly see a move toward that uh, with each passing, uh, each passing year in the church. Yeah, it, it almost puts families, I'm thinking through the lens of a parent now, right? Like puts me through, um, like uh, both my kids are, uh, you know, past, uh, baptized and, and past that, but it's kind of thinking like, hmm, do I wait till they're seven years old to baptize them so mm -hmm. that they can just go through the restored order or, you know, um, like, is that rolling the dice? You know, not that we would use that term, but like, am I taking a chance by not baptizing my child until they're, you know, seven years old? And um, not that people are manipulating the system to do that, but it does create kind of that interesting conversation from that lens. And then even as a youth minister, right, it's like, um, or not necessarily a youth minister, but if I'm a DRE looking at that, um, do, what, like, where are you promoting people? Like, uh, what path are you telling them to take? And, and yeah, because it doesn't make sense or it's not quite practical or, or logical, it can confuse people and be like, man, you know, there are a lot of hoops to jump through when it comes to yeah. the sacraments. And that's the last thing we want are yeah, exactly. for people yeah. to jump through. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If I was a parent, I, I don't have children myself, but if I was a parent, I would take seriously the church's teaching that the parents are the primary catechists 
And when my child reached the age of seven, I'd approach the pastor and say, my child is, is ready for confirmation as his mm -hmm. catechist. I, I decided, I felt discerned that. would see, see what that conversation led to. <laughs> I, I want to take back all three of my kids' baptisms. So yeah, I know, I know right? Now, so. It's kind of like, especially since my youngest is at six, I'm like, oh, yeah. like, you know, but, uh, yeah. no, but I, I myself, though, I would not advocate a shift towards waiting to baptize our infants. No. But I, you know, if I, it's, this is not currently uh, legal in the Roman Catholic Church, but I would advocate for a shift in church policy, church teaching, where we would move some, something more like what the Eastern Church is doing. So when we baptize our infants, we would fully initiate them at that time and then raise them in a life of faith. Uh, but, but what we're, so because right now canon law says we cannot confirm until the age of reason, uh, the next best is to I think to baptize children as infants if the family is is uh, committed to raising them in a life of faith, and then when they reach the age of reason, when they're able to, uh, <clears throat> when whatever we say the the readiness is for first communion, we apply that same readiness to confirmation, and we celebrate the sacraments of confirmation Eucharist in the same liturgy at a usually at a parish liturgy where the pastor receives delegation from the bishop to confirm those children. Um, Nick, um, what do you feel like is this the biggest challenge or the biggest challenges to moving towards this? Like what you're saying is pretty clear and makes sense. And I think when people have these conversations, I hear similar things of, of moving back to the restored order. But what do you feel like is the biggest are the biggest challenges to to moving towards that or moving? Um, yeah, moving towards that that um, that process. Well, one challenge is is just what you guys noted in your previous podcast. If if your whole youth ministry project is centered on sacramental preparation for confirmation, then you have to, you know, and, and the, the bishop is saying, well, we're going to take that away now. And the panic that you can see in some youth minister's eyes is, uh, you know, you can see it from across the room. And, uh uh, so yeah. there's that. They're going to have to really but, step up and do actual, you know, youth ministry that's not dependent upon sacramental prep. Yeah. Uh, but then on the other end is the the catechists and the DREs who are responsible for sacramental prep for the the primary school kids, um, and that that's going to require a paradigm shift because right now folks see have this understanding of of sacramental prep in a kind of a, a school model. So many, many parishes have something like a, a two-year sacramental prep program for First Communion that's kind of textbook-based and, and classroom-based. And they're, seeing, they're thinking of it in a way, now I got to add on another two years for confirmation prep, and we're going to have this massive thing. And instead, they need, we need to think of it more along the lines of the catechumenate, where it's a relationship development process. So when a child has a, a significant relationship with Christ and, and Jesus's community, the church, uh, then that child is ready for to complete their initiation with uh, confirmation Eucharist. And it, it can be four years for some children. It could be four months for some children. It, like your family, John, I'm sure that the way you've raised your children, they don't need the kind of preparation that someone who's not very involved in a parish is gonna need. So, so we'd have 
kind of a more, if you think of it more like wedding preparation, how, how long do couples need in order to prepare to live a married life? Some, I, I was engaged five years. <laughs> so other people, I met a woman yesterday who was engaged for three months before she got married. So it, it, it's going to vary depending upon the nature of the relationship each child has with, with the community. I think that's an excellent challenge and point of reflection for us, honestly, around around how many years we do preparation and, and requiring a, a years, right? And because it is, it's very much school based. And Chris, you and I have talked about this a lot in the podcast, but it's not taking into account where people are at spiritually in their faith journey. And, mm-hmm. and it's not about memorizing the 10 commandments or the seven gifts of the Holy spirit. Right. Mm-hmm. Those are important. Right. But it's about relationship. It's relationship with God, with Christ and relationship with the community. And, and, and that's the bar. Right. And, and I feel like in a lot of our sacramental prep programs, the we've, created a bar that's so much higher than it really needs to be with all the requirements and how many years you go through the program. And so, uh, and, and a lot of it, I still go back to what we said before is I think there's fear. It's fear that we're going to lose young people. Yeah. The, the irony is we're losing young people because of the processes that have in place, you know, and that's, what's so funny. It's like, we need to hold on to them as long as possible, but you're actually losing them the tighter your grip is on them. Yeah, if what we were currently doing was working, I'd say, okay, well, then we got to think through this more. But, you know, it's not working, so let's do something else. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned diocese. Yeah. So so bishops obviously can can set a mandate for, for their entire diocese. But we've also seen, Nick, we were talking about this before the show, we've also seen that uh, parishes on their own, regardless of what the diocese does, have made a decision. And we were talking about the Diocese of San Jose, for instance. We know that there are six parishes in San Jose, California, that, that are restored order. Uh, what what's that like? Are, are there parishes individually that are doing that? Uh, you know, in spite of what the the diocese is or is not doing, what's that looking like? Yeah, I'm not as familiar with that. I know that it's happening in San Jose, and I think it's happening in some other dioceses. And um, I believe the process in the in San Jose is that. Uh, if a parish wants to move to restored order, they need to sort of put together a case and present that to the bishop. And the the bishop under whom that was um, developed uh, just recently passed away. He was the first bishop of the diocese, uh, Pierre Dumain. And then since I've lived here, the bishop has, for the majority of the time I've been here, the bishop has been uh, uh, P.J. McGraw, who just retired. And I believe, I'm not, you may know better than I do, John, but I believe only one parish petitioned to him during his time and, and he granted that and, uh, and the order was restored in that parish. Now we have a brand new bishop. He's been here less than a year and he comes from a diocese that did not have restored order. And, and I don't know what would happen if a parish would present or even if he'll continue to allow the parishes that are doing it. But the current, the current, rule in San Jose is that if a parish has restored the order, uh, then uh, when there's a pastor change, the pastor may not undo that. That's the the diocesan law. Um, But I I don't know if that's a common thing in other dioceses. I don't know how many dioceses have sort of a bi-parish sort of of thing. It's obviously a bit confusing for for parishes in in the San Jose diocese because a 
one diocese will have restored order and the, the diocese next, I'm sorry, one parish will have restored order and the parish next door won't. And so it's, we have sort of a varied practice within the diocese. Yeah. And that, and that leads to some tension as well. I know in our diocese, <clears throat> just amongst the churches nearby, we all made an agreement to move confirmation to ninth grade uh, just because people were church shopping and hopping around and, and different things like that. And, um, you know, but it's fine because this, people still church shop, even though we have a unified age and it's again, missing the the purpose of the sacrament. It's almost like we've taken something really great, something really good and, you know, made it something, uh, taken away its value. Yeah. Um, and, and it's hard, it's hard. It's, it's definitely a challenge in that regards uh, for sure. I'm laughing at the comment though you made about youth ministers showing fear because the reality is that um, we, we're not strong enough to unionize or we could be <laughs> to overthrow that. Yeah. Well, and I know some youth ministers who would probably be relieved if confirmation moved somewhere else. Uh, I, That's I a was, good point. I was one of those actually, quite honestly, because, and we only had, we did more of immediate preparation when I was at St. Lawrence in Santa Clara, when I was there, uh, we did more of immediate preparation, but we had, uh, we, we developed a comprehensive youth ministry where we expected and encouraged those who wanted to get confirmed to be involved in the greater youth ministry. But again, there, it wasn't a two-year program. As a matter of fact, it was really an eight-week eight program that I think we may have spread out over the year. Um, but our focus was more RCIA. And I, I didn't know it as RCIA at the time because I didn't have that education. But fortunately, I, I had a pastor, associate pastor, and a director of faith formation who were much more educated than me and really helped model that for us. And I think there's some... I think, you know, some practical takeaways for me anyways, for those uh, who are listening, who are, are in the trenches is like, uh, you know, with, especially if you're not restored order, how do you, how do you keep the sacraments uh, connected to the Eucharist, especially confirmation, right? Mm-hmm. And how, how, even though if you don't have the power to restore the order, which a lot of listeners won't, you know, what are some of the practical implications? And I, I think, I think we really need to rethink you know, does it need to be a two-year program? What do the requirements look like? I, I think reading the RCIA and looking at the RCIA, the catechumenate model of, 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 of inquiry and et cetera, all that, I think trying to bring that model, that way of thinking into our sacramental prep, whether it's Eucharist in seven, in, at age seven or confirmation in high school, wherever we do that, I mean, I, I think those are some practical takeaways for me that, that I would highly encourage people to really think about uh, as opposed to just doing things the way it's always been done because it's not working. So yeah. what other practical takeaways, Nick or Chris, would you add to this conversation for, for people who are listening to think about? Well, I think one is just uh, developing among the, the candidates for the sacraments and the parish at large, a, a deeper understanding of, of what we mean by Trinity. And, and I, I just cringe on Trinity Sunday because, you know, you can throw a dart at a, at a map of a diocese and go to that parish wherever the dart lands and, and almost count on some kind of heresy being proclaimed about the Trinity because we have such a shallow understanding of, of what it is. Uh, but it is, understanding the Trinity is probably the most practical thing we can do as Catholics because that, that relationship between the Father and the Son is the whole the whole ground, the whole purpose for Jesus having become incarnate is so, so God could extend that loving relationship to us. And then we 
by accepting that, by being initiated into that, by becoming one with Christ, become Christ. We become divinized. We share in that Trinitarian relationship, which which then makes all of us uh, we, we, makes all of us priests. Uh, pre- people uh, we call it the baptismal priesthood and the ministerial priesthood, the two priesthood priesthoods of Christ. And and those of us who are not ordained or initiated into that baptismal priesthood, which which then gives us a mission, gives us a job to go out and do just what God did when God sent Jesus uh, to to become incarnate, to to uh, extend God's love to us. Our job is to take that same Trinitarian love out into the world, so that folks that don't have that relationship uh, can can be drawn into that life of hope and the life of peace. I mean, I grew up Catholic. I was baptized as an infant. I was raised by a holy woman who still today prays her rosary every day for me. And and I have never known a day uh, of desolation and darkness and loss of hope. Now, when I was a teenager, I pretended I did. But, you know, you it's like if you, it's like I had times of darkness, but I knew where the light switch was. And And there are people in the world who don't have that. And, and by understanding what it means to, to live in the love of the Trinity, uh, that can transform our parishes so that we all become evangelists to change the world. And so when we're, if, if we're confirming teenagers who are being confirmed after they've celebrated their first communion, uh, then I think the challenge for those who are preparing them needs to focus on what, what that teenager understands by Eucharist. You know, if that is the, is the kid going to mass every Sunday and receiving communion every Sunday? And if so, what does he believe about that? What does she believe about that? And if, and if they, if they really have a true belief and a true love of Jesus in sharing in communion, they're ready for confirmation. If they're not going to church, they've celebrated their first communion and they kind of dropped out and they really don't have a relationship with Christ. Then it has to be a, a reorienting toward that Eucharist that they celebrated years ago and having them renew that and, and come back into a fuller understanding of that. And when they've done that, then they're ready for confirmation. But it, the, we need to move away from the understanding of confirmation as this mature affirmation of something I did when I was an infant and more of a restoration or a, a reclaiming of what we believe about Eucharist. Yeah, yeah, I man, that, that is so well said, and I'm gonna make it sound dumb now, but uh, like kind of repeating what you just said because it it, it, it was beautiful. But the, the, as a youth minister, um, I think, and for DREs, what we can do, um, it goes back to looking at the right of the catechumen, right, and the, that period of uh, of just relational ministry and connecting them through things like adoration and helping them build that desire for the Eucharist, right? And, and, and for Jesus. So that it's not um, an academic or scholastic sort of process, um, which we've made it. And, um, you know, I just love how you put, because for me, a large part of what we're trying to do with the confirmation program that we have here is make it relational. Um, the relationship they have with other Christians, disciples, whether that's their sponsors, their parents or parishioners, um, the relationship they have with the church um, and how they serve inside the church building um, and throughout the throughout not just the parish but you know um, the the country and, and and so forth and helping them like see that desire of like how how their faith is a part of their life because it is that you know that desire um, for the Eucharist it's the desire um, that uh, uh, to to continue to love God love others and, and love ourselves and make disciples and 
Um, so as I mentioned, you, I think, articulated that much more beautifully than I did. But uh, that's why <laughs> I, I mean, I think you're doing I, fine. <laughs> but, you know, I, that, that's what we're trying to um, with Marathon, trying to coach youth ministers to do is to mm -hmm. get away from the textbooks, to yeah. get away from the um, sit in a classroom. And it, what's scary for them about that is it's unfamiliar and yes. it's not what they went through. Um, especially a lot of people, I think John and my age, right? It's not what we went through. Yeah. And now we're asked to do something that's also hard to measure and evaluate, right? Like how do you know you're being successful if you don't have an attendance sheet, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, yeah. you, you do that by counting how many, you know, baptisms and, um, and, and confirmations that you're doing too. But like, only if you know that you're having uh, having these these relational and deep uh, profound conversations happening there as well. Pope uh, Pope John Paul II uh, gave a criteria for the success of our Sunday Eucharist, which we could apply maybe to confirmation prep as well. Uh, he said, "As uh, are people in the neighborhood being fed, are uh, the wounded being healed? Is transformation happening in our communities around us because Christians are present? And if we could uh, look at sacramental prep with the same kind of criteria i think that would be helpful yeah definitely definitely this was an amazing conversation uh i i enjoyed it thoroughly uh nick thank you so much for for being with us on this on this episode to talk about this topic if people want to find out more about you nick and about what you guys are doing with team rcia where can people go to find that information and and connect with you just go to teamrcia.com and uh, you'll see there uh, all of our resources and uh, you can also contact us through that website. Very good. Well, they, and I know Diana and, and Nick are out and about also in different parts of the country. So if they are in your neck of the woods for a conference and event or something like that, I highly recommend that you uh, take some time out and go check them out. Uh, they are phenomenal at what they do and are a gift to the church. So well, I want to thank you guys for welcoming me and uh, having me on. It's, uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to both of you. I suspect this won't be the last time. I, I have a feeling we may bring you back, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Well, Thank you, Nick, so much for joining us. And uh, again, um, to uh, check out not just uh, this episode, but past episodes as well and past conversations, uh, we invite people to uh, visit us at thechurchpodcast.org, or you can subscribe to us on iTunes and other places where podcasts can be heard. Um, and definitely leave us a review. Let us know how you're doing. And if you've got questions or comments, you know, when you see John and I post about uh, these uh, topics, feel free to engage in the conversation there, or you can shoot us an email at questions at the churchpodcast.org. Again, that's questions at the churchpodcast.org. And John, if people want to find you and just connect with you, uh, what's the best way of doing that? Uh, go to parishsuccessgroup.com. Uh, you find out all about me and the work that we're doing there uh, for parishes and dioceses. And then, of course, on social media, especially Twitter, Facebook, uh, at John Ronaldo. Love to get in dialogue there. And you can find me at MarathonYouthMinistry.com or connect with me on social media at Marathon Youth Ministry as well. Uh, Nick, again, thank you for joining us. And John, will you close us in prayer? I would love to. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this invigorating conversation in terms of the conversation about restored order and the sacraments. Lord, thank you for the gift. Thank you for the gift of Nick and the work that he's doing with Team RCIA. 
Lord, just continue to help us really uh, look at our ministry in depth and see how do we orient uh, what we do towards the Eucharist and towards you, Lord, and all that we do. And how do we help people know you more fully through our sacramental preparation programs, through our faith formation, youth ministry, through liturgy, through all the things that we do. Help us be oriented to you, to Eucharist, and all that we do. And help us to discern the best way that we can go about doing that and help us to be brave and courageous enough to make changes to our ministry uh, when it seems right. So, Lord, be with us in our ministry. In your name we pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.